This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome to Armchair Explorer on location. Travel and adventure stories recorded in the field in the most immersive way possible, designed to give you a glimpse of what it feels like to be there for real. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey guys, I hope you are all doing well and ready for adventure because I got a really good one today. It's about one of my favorite places in the world, right in my hood, Rocky Mountain National Park. And one of my heroes, an incredible woman named Isabella Bird who traveled here on her own in 1873. This was a time when women were expected to stay at home. They certainly weren't expected to travel from Scotland to America and all the way to Estes Park and what would become Rocky Mountain National Park on their own. It's a great story. It's an inspiring story. It's a bit of a love story too, no spoilers. But she had a little fling with a chiseled ruffian called Mountain Jim while she was here, or so the legend goes. Anyway, if you like this show, check out our other Rocky Mountain On Location episodes. There's some really cool ones about myths and mysteries, climbing mountains and more. And drop me a line at Armchair Explorer Podcast on Instagram or through the website armchair-explorer.com. I'd love to know what you think of this episode. I'd love to just hang out and chat, travel and adventure. And I've got some great tips on Rocky Mountain National Park. If you happen to be thinking of coming here, I highly recommend it. And let's grab a beer together if you do, or maybe a hike. All those links are in the show notes too. Just a quick heads up as well, our on-location episodes are expensive and let me tell you, time-consuming to produce, so we partner with destinations to make that happen. They pay for the production, but the storytelling is all ours. And drop me a line and tell me what you want to hear so we can partner with some destinations that you want to go to. But don't worry about that right now, because the adventure is about to begin. Welcome to Exploring Estes Park, a podcast about Colorado's original playground and the base camp to the Rocky Mountains, its history, its people, and its secrets. I'm Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and eight years ago, I left my home in London, England to come here to these soaring peaks of Colorado's front range. I've spent my life writing about the world's most beautiful landscapes, and this might just be the most beautiful of all. So come with me on an adventure through one of my favorite places in the world. We're gonna travel from the top of its mountains to its ice blue alpine lakes. We're gonna hear from its original inhabitants, the Ute and Arapaho Native American tribes, and the stories of the people who founded this town and who are still shaping it to this day. We are exploring Estes Park. 
Our first story is about Isabella Bird, a remarkable woman who arrived here in the 19th century at the very beginning of Estes Park, when the town was little more than dirt roads and a few hardy settlers. She arrived here on horseback more than a hundred years ago, but the words and letters she wrote, which would later become a best-selling book, would come to define how we think about Rocky Mountain National Park and even the West itself. And that image is still drawing people to this day. This is a story about Isabella Bird's determination to defy conventions and seek adventure. It's a love story with a wild west ruffian she met here called Mountain Jim. It's a story of resilience, strength and courage. But most of all, it's a story about Estes Park. And it will show you these mountains in a way you have never seen them before. But first, who was Isabella Bird? Well, she was English. She was the daughter of a minister. She was homeschooled. That is, she never had any formal education outside of what her father provided. He was educated enough to become a clergyman and made sure that his daughter learned to read and write. And boy, she read a lot. This is Jim Pickering. He's the historian laureate of Estes Park and the author of over 40 books and scholarly articles about the town, including a number about Isabella Bird. Her father, like many Englishmen, was a, a nature lover, a botanist. And so he taught her a lot about plants and animals and those kinds of things. So, so she was fascinated with nature and the out of doors. She was infirm from a child. She never had, uh, had particularly good health. She suffered from uh, a variety of illnesses, nervous debility, what they called it back then. Some might call it depression today. Uh, But her back problems meant that she had to wear a brace when she rode. She suffered from insomnia, various other kinds of headaches, uh, depression. She was not a well person, and yet she insisted upon this adventuring despite her physical limitations, which says something about her basic grittiness. I'd call her a gritty woman. That grittiness paid off. Isabella traveled extensively throughout her life from around 1850 to her death in 1904. In her early 20s, she traveled across the ocean to Halifax and visited Boston, Cincinnati, and Chicago. In 1872, she visited the Hawaiian Islands, climbed a volcano, and learned how to ride a horse astride. And all this at a time when women were expected to ride side saddle, stay at home, and look after the children. And those that did travel were rich and upper class. She was neither, and she traveled alone despite her health and limitations. But determination was Isabella's defining characteristic. So after six months in Hawaii, she took off for San Francisco and gradually made her way east, high into the Rocky Mountains, where she hoped that the pure mountain air might restore her. At that time, though, Estes Park wasn't the tourist town it is today. It was in the middle of nowhere, and very few people had attempted to find it. Her first attempt was under the guidance of Mr. Chalmers, the owner of her Longmont guest house. She'd heard about it, and because it was remote, she likes remote places. She likes places where civilization is not. Well, she's... Uh, She has trouble getting here. 
For four weary hours we searched hither and thither along every indentation of the ground, which might be supposed to slope towards the Big Thompson River, which we knew had to be forded. Chalmers, who started confident, bumptious, blatant, was ever becoming more bewildered, and his wife's thin voice more piping and discontented, and my stumbling horse more insecure and I more determined, as I am at this moment, that somehow or other I would reach that blue hollow and even stand on Long's Peak where the snow was glittering. But they became lost. So lost, in fact, that not only could her so-called guide not find the way to Estes Park, he couldn't even find the way back home. The food ran out, it was cold, and his poor wife, who had accompanied them, was lying on the ground in tears. I said I had much experience in traveling and would take control of the party, which was agreed to, and we began the long descent. The frost was intense and made our bruised, grazed limbs ache painfully. Battered and bruised, Isabella eventually found the trail and led them back to Longmont where she immediately started looking for a better guide. She's in a hotel in Longmont, and she comes across two young men who say they're going to Estes Park. And despite the fact that they really don't want to bother with this dowager, it's dragging her along. They're just out of college. And you can imagine this relatively frumpy 40-year-old woman. Why bother with her? But she persuades them to take her to Estes Park. And so they come up by way of what's now Lyons. They come up through the mountains. There's a a cart road that they're following that Joel Estes and his sons had blazed during their time is here. So they come up that way. And as she's struggling up the last hill, suddenly she sees it. From the ridge, at a height of 9,000 feet, we saw at last Estes Park lying in the glory of the setting sun, an irregular basin lighted up by the bright waters of the rushing Thompson, with Long's Peak rising above them all in unapproachable grandeur. I know that moment so well. Arriving on 36, when you crest above that last ridge, the welcome sign carved into the rock, Estes Park. And then suddenly, behind it, the valley in all its glory is revealed. You come over the hill, and I think one's reaction is, there they are. There's the mountains. But on her way up to that view, something happened, something unexpected that would change her life and define her time at Estes Park. She met a ruffian, a desperado, as she would later call him, named Rocky Mountain Jim. He's built a cabin uh, in a strategic area where he can watch people going and coming from Estes Park. He's raising a few herd of cattle nearby. He's got this dog named Ring who she becomes particularly attached to. And so he marks her entrance into Estes Park. Roused by the growling of the dog, his owner came out. His face was remarkable. He is a man about 45 and must have been strikingly handsome. He has large grey-blue eyes deeply set with well-marked eyebrows, a handsome aquiline nose and a very handsome mouth. Tawny hair in thin and cared-for curls fell from under his hunter's cap and over his collar. When I was entirely gone, 
and the loss made one side of his face repulsive, while the other might have been modelled in marble. That missing eye, by the way, that was from a fight he got into with a bear a few years previously. He's over in, by Grand Lake, hunting and recreating. But he gets in this contest with this bear who tears out half his face, causes him to lose an eye, mangles an arm, and he uses that to become Rocky Mountain Jim the Bear Hunter. As he goes around and advertises himself, it becomes part of the self-promoting story that he tells to everybody, including Isabella Bird. And that self-promoting story, well, she falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. But that myth of Rocky Mountain Jim, the Wild West desperado, was also created by Isabella herself. And it's part of a broader image of Estes Park and the Rocky Mountains that we still have to this day. By the 1870s, we're very quickly entering the era of Buffalo Bill and the Wild West show which was as representational of the Old West, trying to capture for the imagination of America and the world what the American frontier had been all about. And so she's coming up in the days when the frontier is pretty much over. By 1890, will be declared by America. The frontier is officially closed, but she's celebrating the vestiges of that world to her readers. Jim reads from his book, This Blue Hollow, Estes Park, The Early Years, 1859 to 1915. Her book, long since a classic, not only publicized and popularized Mountain Jim's short, The Colorful Career, but provided the prism through which subsequent generations would come to view and understand him. But in the hands of Isabella Bird, Rocky Mountain Jim became a melodramatic figure who could just as easily have stepped from the pages of one of Erastus Beetle's popular dime Western novels. And as a matter of fact, when she comes up Muggins Gulch, the very first thing she says about him when she describes him in her letter to Henrietta, she says it was the home or rather, rather den of a notorious ruffian and desperado. It looked like the den of a wild beast. You know, normal people don't live in dens, they live in homes. So before she even introduces us to him, she's told us he's a ruffian and a desperado, in quotation marks. Why? Because her readers, being generally familiar with the wild and woolly American rest, would know exactly the type of figure that she had stumbled into. What would become of their relationship Well, the rest of the book goes on and tells us. You can just imagine the whispered gossip among the clinking teacups of Victorian England as they read these passages. Absolutely. So in Isabella's hands, Mountain Jim became the personification of the wildness of the West and the romanticism of the now fading frontier that those clinking teacups were so desperate to read about. But like all good tales, it needed a love story And that much, at least, was true. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. 
And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. What's interesting is there are two versions of the Isabella Bird story. There's the original version. These are the letters that she sent home to her sister, Henrietta. And then there are the edited versions that she uses to put together A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. Enough of those original letters home have survived to let us know as historians that there's a sub-narrative to all of this. And that sub-narrative really is much more emotionally revealing. After all, she's a Victorian woman. Victorian ladies didn't fall in love with ruffians and desperados. Not if they're going to go back home to the drawing rooms of, of Victorian England and be proper women, right? You just didn't do this. At any rate, clearly a relationship forms between the two of them. She openly hints at it in the book. And uh, that relationship clearly becomes the central narrative issue in A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. Isabella had many adventures during her three months in Estes Park. She rustled cattle, she rode horses. She lived in a log cabin where the snow would blow in through the gaps in the timber. But the definitive moment was when she climbed Long's Peak. Rocky Mountain's 14,259-foot most iconic and dangerous summit. And Mountain Jim was the man to take her up there. We ascended into the purple gloom of the great pine forests, which clothe the skirts of the mountains up to a height of about 11,000 feet. And from their chill and solitary depths, we had glimpses of golden atmosphere and rose-lit summits. Glimpses, too, through a broken vista of purple gorges, of the illimitable plains lying idealized in the late sunlight, their baked brown expanse, transfigured into the likeness of a sunset sea rolling infinitely in waves of misty gold. She paints a beautiful picture of the mountain, which it is. But it was also October, very late in the season. Snow was on the ground and she was wearing, as was her custom, a thin summer Hawaiian riding dress. When you climb Long's Peak, you go up through a jagged break in the rocks called the Keyhole. And once you get across the Keyhole, you go across the back of the mountain Today, it's marked by these eggs. It's called the fried egg route. But back then, there was no markings at all. 
Well, uh, what he did, once he got her through that notch, instead of going along the back of the mountain, they go down to the beginning of the trough, which is a long, rocky climb. And so he exhausts her by making her climb all the way up this notch. Meanwhile, the two young men who go on this trek, these are the guys who brought her up from Longmont, are utterly astounded at Jim and his clumsiness as a guide. But then the exhilaration of having made it made the whole trip worthwhile. It was something at last to stand upon the storm-rent crown of this lonely sentinel of the Rocky Range, on one of the mightiest of the vertebrae of the backbone of the North American continent. Uplifted above love and hate, peace rested for that one bright day on the peak, as if it were some region where fools not rain or hail or any snow, or ever wind blows loudly. It wasn't an easy ascent. Long's Peak never is, even with modern equipment. But she made it and became one of the first women ever to stand on its summit. And perhaps the only one ever to make it up in a flowing silk summer dress. And though Mountain Jim's image as a hardened frontier man was watered down by his lack of mountaineering prowess, his love for her wasn't. At one point near the top, the two young men they were climbing with wanted to abandon her. But Jim was having none of it. If it were not to take a lady up there, he replied, he would not go at all. And gradually, that love was reciprocated. There was clearly on both sides an emotional as well as an intellectual attachment. She found him charming, mysterious, well-educated, polite, They shared some intellectual interests. There's no question that they were attracted to one another. And as a matter of fact, I think there's a considerable truth in her penultimate statement that Jim was a man that any woman might love, but no sane woman would ever marry. And as Bird and Jim's love and respect for each other deepened, so did Isabella's love for these mountains and this magical valley. Estes Park is mine. It is unsurveyed, no man's land, and mine by right of love, appropriation, and appreciation. By the seizure of its peerless sunrises and sunsets, its glorious afterglow, its blazing moons, its hurricanes sharp and furious, its wild auroras, its glories of mountain and forest, of canyon, lake, and river, and the stereotyping them all in my memory. She could write, no doubt about that, and with passion too. And those descriptions, which became best-selling books, would end up defining this valley, these mountains, in the minds of all who read and heard about it. But it was a doomed love, for that traveling bug took hold of Isabella again, and despite the temptation to stay, it was time to part. Jim Pickering reads from one of her letters. On the day in which I parted with Mountain Jim, he was much moved and much excited. I had a long conversation with him about mortal life and immortality. 
and closed it with some words from the Bible. He was greatly impressed, but very excited and exclaimed, I may not see you again in this life, but I shall when I die. I rebuked him gently for his vehemence, but he repeated it with still greater energy, adding, and these words you have said to me, I shall never forget, and dying I swear, I will see you again. But in a way, their love story didn't end, because in Estes Park, it lives on. Rangers at Rocky Mountain National Park call her the mother of the region. Their website reads, Birds published letters describing her travels in Colorado, and especially Estes Park, praise the mountains for their healing power and their sublime beauty. Hers was the first thorough account of a tourist experience in the area that later became Rocky Mountain. National Park. Her words set the tone, created the myth, put this town on the map. And her words are still inspiring the people that live here to this day, including one equally remarkable woman whose story rivals even that of Isabella Bird's. I'm just uh, about to walk into uh, a new restaurant in Estes Park. It's one of the most exciting ones in town. It's called Bird and Jim. I can smell it even before I open the door. My stomach is rumbling. I'm super excited, not just because of the food, but also because Bird and Jim has a really interesting story. How's it going? Hey, how's it Very going? Very nice to meet Sorry. you. Sorry, it looks great. Thank I, you. I can smell the food just like as I opened the door and my stomach immediately started rumbling, which is my sort of benchmark test for any restaurant, right? Right. So a beautiful place. Thank and you. Congrats on it. This is Melissa Strong. She's the owner of Bird and Jim. I graduated from college, the University of Loyola, New Orleans, and I wanted to live in the mountains for a year before real life started. And I decided it was a great real life. That was in 1986. She fell in love with rock climbing as so many people here do, found she excelled at it, picked up some sponsors and climbed professionally. But at the same time, she worked in restaurants around town. And after more than two decades in the industry, she decided to pursue her dream and open her own place. We were missing something. You know, we were missing the locally sourced, seasonally changing cuisine that was happening all around us in the Front Range. They come for Colorado. You know, that's why you're here, is to see the Rocky Mountains, to see the elk, and, you know, then you're, you know, might as well eat some as well. <laughs> but it definitely reflects the setting. And I really wanted uh, a local to bring it to town and not wait around for someone else or a big group to come in. And so it had been a desire of mine, I would say, for after 15 or so years that I really wanted to do my own thing. And she was on the cusp of that dream to open her own restaurant. She had bought the building, she had the vision, the backers, and she was months away from opening when disaster struck. The building was so old, it wasn't winterized, so we had to hire a contractor, rip it down to the studs, and then build it back up again. And so it did take about nine months to get open. And during that time, I had time on my hands to play with some of the old furniture that came with the restaurant. And I was trying to make it look unique. And a technique we discovered on the internet was the Lichtenberg technique. And it makes this really cool pattern on the wood. Um, 
with electricity. And during that, it was about six months before we opened, I was using a machine we created by ripping a transformer out of an old microwave and you attach it to mini jumper cables. And unfortunately, I made the mistake of, of grabbing the leads when they were plugged in. So I was connected to the electric chain and I was trapped. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't even scream. Like you can't, your muscles are frozen. Your brain is still whirling though. So for about 20 seconds, I tried to think about different ways I could potentially get out of this situation, you know, scream for help, throw the leads down, even fall over. And I was physically incapable of doing any of those things. And then realized that even though I wasn't ready and it was a bummer, uh, I was dying. And then all of a sudden, everything went dark and I was standing in a beautiful forest. And that was obviously not easy to wrap your mind around. <laughs> and I was just kind of taken by how beautiful everything was. The dappled sunlight was coming through the trees and lighting up the fern bed on the forest floor. And I was just kind of captured by that scene. And then I turned my head and in that scene was a dark tunnel with these figures in between myself and the tunnel. And that's when uh, I had another little conversation with myself and said, I think this is really happening and I want to get out of here. And if I could just get back to help, I think everything would be okay. And with that desire and thought, somehow reverse tunnel effect, my eyes open and I was on, in my driveway looking at the gravel drive. Well, then I could scream and that scream echoed through the valley I lived in for sure. People later on came back to the restaurant and told me that they heard me. But her husband didn't hear her. He was working in another room with a big heater blowing in his ear. So somehow she summoned the strength to stand up, take five steps and scream again into the door. He heard her, but then she looked down and saw her hands for the first time. They told me I'd only have four fingers, my pinkies and my index finger. And even then, I knew I wanted to find a different doctor, but I was still grateful just to be alive. And that helped me through my injury, and it, I think, helped for sure with my recovery. She shows me her hands. Her thumbs had to be sewn back on after the accident. The doctors at the burn center in Denver managed against the odds to stitch them together, but she's still missing the ends of most of her fingers. So they're all different shapes and sizes. I have some awesome scars where they sewed my arms together. So I was sewn like that for three weeks. Wow. And then exit wound. Jeez. One, there's one here and one here. Oh my God. And then the skin grafts, like this, like when they took it apart, they just used the extra skin here to like, this, these were all, everywhere you see edges, it was all stitches. Mm -hmm. And they just sewed different skin from different parts of me. So just like, I can't, like, so lucky. So lucky to be alive. So lucky. so lucky to be here. And it was that positive attitude and determination, that fight, which saw her through. Because guess what? That accident, an accident that would kill most people, didn't delay the restaurant opening one bit. I had surgeries about a month before opening and opened with, you know, some bandages, took stitches out of my own hands during, you know, before I came in to train the staff and then to, I, I did have to have a few surgeries post-opening. But I had the building and I had the loan and the building was gutted out and I was alive. So I knew I'd open a restaurant. I always knew I was pretty determined, but um, this recovery really sealed the deal on that.
That determination paid off. The restaurant, despite the new challenges brought by the sudden onset of COVID-19, is thriving. And she even has plans to expand. And her climbing, well, despite being told she may never climb again, that's coming back too. I was uh, able to do my first climb on plastic. We have a climbing wall in our garage uh, in October. The accident was in April. Wow. It was with a lot of pain and it was a uh, very big hold. And then I continued, you know, basically facing the pain and toughening up the skin grafts and was able to do my first climb outside in March of the, you know, within the same calendar year. So it was about, honestly, a week and a half before the one year anniversary of my accident. It was horrible and scary and great and wonderful all at the same time. And it's gotten so much better since then. So I'm climbing a lot stronger with a lot less pain and the skin grafts are getting tougher and holding up. That's one gritty woman. And it was another gritty woman that helped her get back on her feet and back on the rock. She decided to call the restaurant Bird and Jim prior to the accident in honor of Isabella Bird. But after the accident, Isabella's story became a source of inspiration for Melissa too. Her determination is really what inspires me. You know, she didn't let the constraints of society hold her down. And she didn't sit at home and you know, needlepoint and play the piano. Instead, she traveled and pursued what she wanted to do. And that has always resonated with me, of, of just not being held back and pursuing your dreams and making them happen. So it goes from climbing to a business owner that there's definitely a connection of being determined and and not giving up and not letting a door that's closing close. Stick your foot in it. (laughs) Stick your foot and never give up. Never let anyone tell you what you can't do. Isabella would have been proud. She would have been proud of Melissa and she would have been proud of what Estes Park has become, of how her words gave life to that feeling, that magic we all feel. When we come over the hill and see this valley, this blue hollow, beneath us in all its rapturous delight. No one can read Our Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains without thinking about the experience that they had when they first came over Park Hill and first saw the mountains. There's an exhilaration, a lifting of the soul and the spirit, and it's brought millions of people back And it really made Estes Park and Rocky Mountain National Park one of the best loved and most visited places in the entire nation. People come here from all over the world and they're drawn here by the same incredible mountains and the same kind of views and experience and air and health and all those kinds of things that Isabella Bird found so exhilarating. And wrote about so effusively, so poetically, so passionately that it is still imprinted in the psyche of Estes Park today and perhaps in us too. The mountains she created in our minds, those myths she brought home of a magical valley and a ruffian desperado she loved, are part of a broader myth of the West, a narrative that shaped not just the legacy of the old frontier, but also our relationship to nature and wild places as something to be treasured and enjoyed, something we're part of, something worth conserving and protecting. That spirit gave birth to Rocky Mountain National Park. That's what draws people here every year. People who can feel that magic that Isabella wrote about. People just like you. Or maybe Isabella said it best. 
in this glorious upper world, with the mountain pines behind and the clear lake in front, in the blue hollow at the foot of Long's Peak, at a height of 7,500 feet, where the hoar frost crisps the grass every night of the year, I have found far more than I ever dared to hope for. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Exploring Estes Park. Head over to visitestespark.com to download a free guide to seeing the park through Isabella Bird's eyes. It's a lot of fun. And keep listening. We have some incredible stories coming up, including our next episode that will take you even higher than Estes Park's tallest peaks into the dark skies above. And an amazing story of a couple who founded an observatory there. So keep pushing the boundaries, keep making Isabella proud, and most importantly, keep exploring Estes Park. Exploring Estes Park is produced by House of Pod in partnership with Visit Estes Park. I'm your host, Aaron Miller. I also wrote and produced this episode. Our audio and story editor is Jason Patton. And thank you also to Paul Caroli for production and recording assistance on this episode. Excerpts from A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains by Isabella Bird were read by Jessica Winter. A very special thanks to Jim Pickering for his voice and expertise and to Melissa Strong for sharing her story and delicious food. Thank you also to Josh Harms and the whole team at Visit Estes Park. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this Armchair Explorer on location episode. I had a ton of fun making it. I hope you had a ton of fun coming along with me. Next week, we'll be back with our usual format and then there'll be lots more on location stuff to come. 